so I think we all know there are some warnings we really ought to pay attention to. Uh, I'll, I'll start with some funny ones. Uh, there's one up here. It's going to pop up, I hope. Uh, all, plenty of people here with young families. Uh, maybe you've got a pram or a stroller. And it's important to know, isn't it, that uh, you should remove your child from the stroller before you fold it up. That's a good tip because folded stroller is good. Like that's convenient for getting in the car, but folded child is less than good. Uh, and so uh, that's a good uh, one to heed. Uh, the next one is even more important to heed. Uh, it's a good warning sign. If you've got a thermometer, it's important to keep track of where you've used it. Right? <laughs> Once it's been used rectally, uh, then uh, please don't use it orally. Right? That's a good warning. Uh, if you've picked up a thermometer from the pharmacy, uh, you don't want to get those things, uh, get your thermometers mixed up. Pay attention to this warning. Uh, the next one's also important. Uh, if you buy yourself a chainsaw, it's good to work out which ends the cutting end and which ends the holding end. A uh, friend of mine who works in, uh, I actually, uh, yeah, I've heard of uh, the, the rate of, uh, that she works as a hand therapist in a hospital, and the rate of accidents goes up astro astronomically post-Christmas uh, when blokes get power tools that they don't know how to operate. And uh, so they repeated this warning. Anyway, so these are all warnings, uh, tough crowd today, but these are all warnings that we really should pay attention to uh, but we all know that they're a little bit of a joke, aren't they? I don't actually know if they're real. You know, sometimes those things are real uh, and sometimes someone's just found a, you know, photoshopped a warning sign. I'm not sure. Uh, you would do, do well to pay attention to those warnings, uh, but they are just a bit of a joke. Uh, but there are other warnings that are much more serious, aren't they? Uh, and perhaps you spoke about some of those in your conversations just now. Maybe someone got themselves in a kind of life or death uh, situation because they ignored a particular warning. And that's the situation that we come across uh, in today's passage from Matthew chapter 16. If you don't pay attention to the warnings Jesus gives in this passage, the consequences could be disastrous. Uh, Jesus gives us two warnings about two dangers in particular. The first warning uh, is about the, uh, the danger of forgetfulness. I think in particular, the, the danger of forgetting the mighty works of Jesus. And the second warning is about the danger of false teaching, in particular uh, this, uh, what Jesus calls the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So we're going to spend some time looking at those two warnings, why they're, why they're important, uh, why we should really pay attention to them. Uh, first, let, let's look at the danger of forgetfulness. Right, beware this danger of forgetfulness. Uh, look, in, in verses 5 to 7, uh, from verse 5, Matthew says, uh, when they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Uh, be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. As you remember last week, Jesus and his disciples did a bit of ministry in Gentile territory. Uh, they were over in Tyre and Sidon, and then they spent time in and around the, the area around those cities, the Gentile cities called the Decapolis. Now they're heading back across the lake into Jewish territory. Uh, and as they're heading across the lake, you, you imagine the scenario. Uh, Peter says to John, I thought you were bringing the bread. No, I thought you were bringing the bread. And they realized no one's brought the bread. You know, we forgot to bring the bread, which uh, if you've ever been on a, uh, on a trip, a bit of a trek with a group of hungry young men or perhaps hungry young children, uh, it's a bigger deal than you might think for getting to bring the bread. Uh, and so, uh, while they're thinking about this, uh, Jesus is aware that they're uh, discussing this uh, situation with the bread, uh, and he gives them this warning. Be careful, he says. 
Uh, it's literally, uh, make sure you look out for this. The, the words from the, the word for I. You know, make sure you look out for this. Make sure you catch sight of this. Be careful. Be on your guard, Jesus says. Pay close attention to this, to this yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, now we're going to come back to that yeast a, a bit later on and spend a whole bunch of time thinking about that. Uh, but notice that, that uh, after Jesus gives his disciples this kind of really strong warning, double-barreled, be careful, be on your guard, all they've got to say, well, it's because we forgot to bring along some bread. They just don't quite get it, do they? It'd be like if Gabby and I were going hiking, uh, which we used to do in the pre-kids era, and uh, maybe we'll get back to it. Uh, But uh, we're going hiking, and you come to one of those uh, swing bridges, a sort of suspension bridge. Uh, We're walking across, uh, and underneath there's a a deep kind of raging river, uh, and we're about halfway across, uh, and Gabby says, Aaron, the bridge is falling down. If we don't do something quickly, we're going to plunge into the river, we're going to die. And my response is, oh, bother, I forgot to bring my sunscreen and bathers. You know, like that, that's a bit like what's going on here with the disciples. There's a real and present danger here. And yet they're completely oblivious to it. In fact, what's most important is not so much that they're oblivious to Jesus' warning, although that is particular, that is important. Uh, But what's even more important is that they've forgotten about Jesus too. It's like they've got the blinkers on and they've completely forgotten about who Jesus is and his mighty works that they've just been witnessing. So as you read this, I wonder if you see yourself in Jesus' disciples. I know I absolutely can see myself in them. You know, one moment I can be absolutely blown away by how much Jesus loves me blown away by his love, his grace, his mercy, his incredible power at work in my life and in the lives of others. And the next moment I'm thinking, don't you realize this need I have, Jesus? You know, I don't have any bread. It's like somehow I put the blinkers on. I'm completely forgotten about who Jesus is and his mighty works in my life and in the lives of others. So what does Jesus say to his disciples? Right, that they're in this moment of forgetting about who he is, spiritually blind, spiritual, uh, spiritually forgetful. What does he say? Essentially, he says, I know you forgot the bread, you idiots. Right? But what's more important is not that you forgot the bread, but that you forgot me. You've forgotten what I've just done twice in the last couple of months. At least that's my paraphrase. Let, let's get what it actually says from verses 8 to 10. Verse 8, aware of their discussion, Jesus asks, you of little faith. Don't you get it, right? Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Right? Don't you remember, Jesus is saying, have you already forgotten? Have you already forgotten the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Have you already forgotten the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Now, I'm not particularly good at math, so actually I was not too bad in primary school and high school. Uh, Between year 11 and year 12, I uh, decided uh, that I was going to go into full-time Christian ministry, uh, and I thought, uh, what kind of youth pastor needs to be an expert in maths? So I dropped maths in year 12. I'm not sure how my parents felt about that. They're they're here today, Uh, but it all worked out okay. 
Anyway, uh, I'm not particularly kind of good at maths, but I do understand the maths here that Jesus is talking about. Jesus is saying to his disciples, don't you remember how I took five loaves of bread and fed a crowd of 5,000 men, right? plus women and children? You remember there's a lot more in the crowd, but they counted the men in these days in particular. Don't you remember, Jesus says, that I took seven loaves and fed a crowd of 4,000 men, plus women and children? That's what we saw last week. The 5,000 is the Jewish crowd, the 4,000 is the Gentile crowd. The mass is not that complicated, except it is a bit weird. If you take a closer look at it, it's a bit weird. With five loaves, Jesus fed 5,000, and with seven loaves, he fed 4,000. Okay, if you were doing the maths, you'd expect it to be the other way around, wouldn't you? The more people brought to Jesus, the more he was able to do. The more loaves the disciples gave to Jesus, the more people he was able to feed. But that's not the case. And that's kind of Jesus' point in this kind of situation with his disciples. He's trying to help his disciples to see that the less they had to offer him, the more he was able to do. Remember Jesus says that when you brought me seven loaves, I fed 4,000. When you brought me five loaves, I fed 5,000. Imagine how many people I'm going to be able to feed when you bring me no bread. That's, that's what he's saying. You guys have forgotten the bread. Don't sweat it. I fed, like, oh, I'm pretty sure I can rustle up 12 loaves for you. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't you get it? Have you forgotten who I am? Have you forgotten how I work? Have you forgotten the power I have? I'm Emmanuel. Remember, Matthew 1.23. I am Emmanuel, God with you, Jesus is saying. I created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. I reckon I can create some bread for you. I've got it covered. Don't forget who I am, Jesus says. Don't, don't forget what I've done. And don't forget how I work. It's really easy for us to do that, to forget who Jesus is and what he's done. Uh, so often we're completely dictated to by our present feelings and experiences rather than remembering Jesus' mighty works in the past. So things can be going along swimmingly in your relationship with God. Uh, you feel on top of the world. You have this kind of deep sense of God's love and power and mercy in your life. And then just the smallest thing can throw it off, isn't it? Like you have a bad night's sleep. The kids start misbehaving. You lose an important file on your computer. You'll be working ages on that. You start getting a cold. You miss out on your morning coffee. You know, something really intensely serious. And before you know it, you're throwing up your hands saying, Jesus, oh, I don't have any bread. Don't you care about me at all? Don't you understand this plight I'm in? And Jesus says, you have little faith. You've forgotten my mighty works, Jesus says. You've forgotten that I created all things. All things. Every mountain and valley, every ocean and, and desert Jesus created. He created every raindrop, every snowflake, every molecule, every atom, every single hair on your head. He created it all. He created all things. He sustains all things. He brought the rain yesterday and the sunshine today. He brings spring. He'll bring some cooler autumn weather after summer. He brings the harvest after the sowing. He'll bring your next breath after this breath that you're taking right now. 
He sustains all things all the time. He created all things. He sustains all things. And then he entered into his creation. We read about this in the Gospels. He performed marvelous deeds. Have we forgotten that? Healing the sick, feeding the hungry, calming the storm, walking on water, casting out demons, cleansing the leper, raising the dead. Have we forgotten all that? Have we forgotten all that Jesus has done? We forget that Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to give his life for us on the cross. Paying the full penalty for all our sins that we might be welcomed into God's family as his children. I've forgotten how he was raised from the dead. Conquering sin and death and the devil. Giving us the sure and certain hope of eternal life. Forgotten that he ascended to the right hand of his father in heaven. Where he rules over all things. Where he prays for you every moment. Continually. And where he builds his church to this day. These are the mighty works of Jesus in the past. Beware forgetting them. Remember my mighty works, Jesus says. We're so forgetful. Yeah, you read the, if you read the next time you're reading through the Bible, highlight all the times God says to his people, don't forget, when you enter the land, don't forget what I've done for you. Jesus knows that we're really vulnerable to forgetting his mighty works. That's why in his kindness, he gives us something concrete like the Lord's Supper. Break this bread, Jesus says. Drink this cup, Jesus says. Do this often. Do this regularly. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this so you don't forget my mighty work on the cross. This is God's kindness to us. Beware the danger of forgetfulness. Because if you forget Jesus and his mighty works for you, you'll miss out on all the blessings of salvation. That's, what it's, that's what's at stake. Beware this danger of forgetfulness. Second, beware the danger of false teaching. Uh, in particular, uh, what Jesus calls the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You see, this word yeast, it's not a word we use lots these days, unless you're, I don't know, into bread making or something. But yeast, it's three times in the passage. Verse 6, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 11, Jesus repeats, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then uh, in verse 12, the disciples finally get that he's not uh, talking about the yeast that you actually put in bread, uh, but he's talking uh, about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, If you read through the New Testament, uh, you might be surprised just how much airtime this warning about false teachers and their teaching gets. It's been, it kind of rears its head in basically every book of the Bible. Jesus and his apostles are continually drumming into us this need to be on our guard against false teachers and their teaching. And I think it's important for us to hear that, how consistent that warning is in the Bible. Because one of the, one of the big kind of flaws in our culture, I think, uh, is that it constantly sends us the message that everyone's opinion is equally valid. You hear that? Everyone's opinion is equally valid. But we've got to be very suspicious about that idea. I, frankly, it, it's, it's rubbish, really. I mean, history shows us that we ought to be very, very careful about any opinion or, or idea. 
or teaching, uh, particularly anyone, that, that any kind of idea that gets a large religious or political platform. We ought to be discerning about that. Right? Because ideas are powerful. Ideas can shape uh, the destiny of nations. Ideas uh, can cause massive good and massive evil. And just think about uh, Hitler in the 1920s in Germany. He just wrote a book with his opinions. Mein Kampf. My struggle about his so-called struggle uh, against the Jewish people. Uh, a struggle that led him to uh, become increasingly anti-Semitic and ultimately to conclude that no person could be both a German and a Jew. And perhaps if we were alive in that day, uh, we'd say, well, that's just his opinion. It won't go anywhere, it's ridiculous, and all opinions are equally valid. But of course what you saw in the 1930s was that Hitler's opinion, his ideas, his systematic teachings had disastrous consequences. They, they formed kind of the intellectual foundations for World War II and they led to the systematic genocide of millions of people. Now don't get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should start censoring people's ideas or silencing people's opinions. I'm all in favour of freedom of speech. If I can speak freely about Jesus, you can speak freely about your things. But what I am saying is don't be naive. Opinions and ideas and teachings are, are, are not equal. And all, and all sorts of ideas and teachings are powerful. That's why Jesus says, watch out. Be discerning, be on your guard, or you might find yourself swallowing some destructive idea, hook, line and sinker, and wondering where you, how you ever got where you are. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. He's warning them, be on your guard, not against the ideas of Hitler, but against this yeast, the teaching, the ideas of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And it's interesting that he says yeast, isn't it? He doesn't say, be on your guard against the red fire-breathing dragon who's got you know, six horns and, and is constantly breathing out false teaching. He doesn't say that. He doesn't even say, uh, be on your guard for the stale bread or, or the bread with a bit of mould around the edges. That would have been more obvious, wouldn't it? He says, be on your guard against the yeast. Right, that part of last week's, it's kind of the starter dough, isn't it? I don't understand bread making very much, but it's like the part of last week's dough that you mix into this week's dough to make it rise. Right, the point is that from the outside of a loaf of bread, you can't even see the yeast. It's impossible to perceive it. But eventually, if you take a bite into it, that, that yeast will uh, permeate, uh, the, the yeast permeates and kind of infiltrates the whole loaf of bread. And if you bite into it, it will permeate your life too. And that's what Jesus says this teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees is like. It, it, it's subtly false, it's just a couple of degrees off center. You can barely see how it's false in some ways. But rest assured, Jesus says, that if you bite into their teaching, that yeast of their teaching will permeate your entire life and lead to disastrous consequences. That's why his warning is so strong. So what is this yeast? What are we supposed to look out for? It seems pretty serious. Uh, we don't want to kind of buy into it. Well, first, we've got to go back to the start of the passage. Let's get the context 
of verses 1 to 4. Then we'll come to this question about what the yeast is. Have a look in verse 1. Matthew says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him uh, by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Uh, If you read through Matthew's Gospel, this is the first time that we come across the Sadducees. I've heard a fair bit about the Pharisees, but this is uh, the first time we have the Sadducees uh, kind of being connected to Jesus' ministry. Uh, Back in chapter 3, if you read through Matthew's Gospel, uh, you'll see that they come to John the Baptist, the kind of forerunner before Jesus. Uh, But this is the first time they uh, kind of interact with Jesus. Uh, So we know a bit about the Pharisees. We don't know anything really at all from Matthew's Gospel about the Sadducees. Now, of course, you can go home and do this if you like. You can do a big historical study of the Sadducees. Uh, But the most important thing you need to know about the Sadducees is what the Bible tells you, which is not a lot, but it's enough because God gives us enough in his word. Uh, So in Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 22, verse 23, Matthew 22, verse 23, uh, Matthew describes the Sadducees like this. And there's other passages you can look up in the Bible, but this one, verse 23. uh, That same day, the Sadducees, uh, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus uh, with a question. Uh, So uh, as uh, one of my Sunday school teachers used to say, uh, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see. You see, that's a good one, isn't it? It's a bit of a Sunday school corker. So like the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. This is a a really kind of key thing about the Sadducees. And obviously that's a, a kind of a clear difference between the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. But the most significant thing here is that it's a clear difference also between the the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because the Pharisees did believe in the resurrection. So what does that tell us? It tells us that despite this important difference and the various other differences that they have, for some reason, the Pharisees and Sadducees have decided to approach Jesus together. They've formed this alliance. They've formed this united front. It's a very unlikely alliance. What is it that brings them together? It's that Jesus threatens their power. Jesus threatens that their religious and political power base. So despite their differences, they've formed this unlikely alliance so that they can test Jesus in this instance, but in the end, eliminate Jesus, destroy Jesus. So right now they come to test Jesus, to kind of ask him a question that might trap him. It's interesting that that word test uh, is the same word that Matthew uses back in chapter 4 when he describes what the devil does to Jesus. Jesus is in the wilderness and Satan comes to him to test him. The same Greek word could be test or tempt. In different contexts, it's translated differently. And so it's interesting that the the same word is used here. The devil comes to Jesus to tempt him. Uh, And so it's fitting that these Jewish leaders come to tempt Jesus in the same way that the devil tempted Adam and Eve back in the garden. It's the same way that the devil tempted Jesus back in Matthew 4, which is that they essentially say to Jesus, be like God. Act like God. Perform like God. Give us a sign from heaven, Jesus. Put on a show, Jesus. Now, these Jewish leaders would have seen Jesus perform miracles already. What they perhaps would have considered to be earthly miracles. Maybe feeding the hungry, they might have witnessed that. Healing the sick, 
cleansing the leper, but now they want a heavenly sign. Go on, Jesus, why don't you, why don't you turn the moon into blood? Why don't you give us a, a starless night? Why don't you stop the sun in its place? If you're God, give us a heavenly sign. If you're from heaven, do something in the heavens. But I said last week, Jesus isn't in the business of performing miracles on demand. You know, he performs miracles uh, to reveal himself to those who come to him in humble faith. You remember the Canaanite woman last week? Uh, coming from Gentile culture, Jesus wasn't sure if she was just coming for a miraculous show, a bit of a spectacle. He tested her faith. He, he discerned that she had genuine faith. Uh, and so he healed her daughter. Jesus doesn't perform miracles just to put on a show. Jesus was never going to perform a miracle for people like these Jewish leaders who've already hardened their hearts to him. They've already decided that not only are they not going to believe in Jesus, they're going to destroy Jesus. So Jesus is not going to give them a sign, or at least not the one they want. In verses 2 and 3, he says to them, okay, you want to talk about signs? Look at it. He says, you want to talk about signs? Let's talk about signs. When it's evening, you say it will be good weather tomorrow uh, because the sky is red. I don't know if any of you learnt the saying as a kid, red sky at night, shepherd's delight. I don't know, that, that was in my family anyway. Uh, in Bendigo, we didn't get the weather reports, so we just had to uh, judge by the, uh, the, the, what colour the sky was. So red sky at night, shepherd's delight. And Jesus says in the morning, uh, you say it will be bad weather today uh, because the sky is red. Right? Red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning as the saying goes. So Jesus says to these guys, these Jewish leaders, uh, you guys know how to interpret signs in the sky, the weather, well done. But you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. The signs of the times. It's a bit of a strange phrase. Well, what does it mean? I think it's talking about the fullness of time in God's plan. So in the Old Testament, uh, God's prophets that he sent, they repeatedly spoke uh, about the fact that one day... God would come. In the fullness of time, God would come to defeat the enemies of his people. It's the day of the Lord. He would defeat the enemies of his people. He would save his people. And he would establish and rule over his kingdom. That's what God would do in his time. So here Jesus is saying, you guys don't get it. You've got no idea. You don't understand that in coming before me, in my coming into this world, God himself has come. You guys are clueless to that. You're good at telling the weather, but you've got no idea what's standing right in front of you. You've got no idea that I've come to defeat God's enemies, to save his people, and to establish and rule over his kingdom. So well done on, on being able to know what's going on with the weather. But you're standing before me, Jesus says, and you've got no idea that you're standing before God in the flesh. And in that sense, these Jewish leaders aren't that different probably to uh, maybe some of you here. Maybe some of your friends or colleagues or family or, or neighbours who know a whole lot about what's going on with the weather. Are they very concerned about the weather, whether it's going to rain tomorrow or it's going to be hot next, next week? They give lots of thought to the weather, but they don't give a single thought to Jesus. They don't give a single thought to Jesus in his kingdom, to Jesus and his death and resurrection. And so Jesus gives these Jewish leaders a sign just of that. He says the only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. 
That's the sign you've got to look at, Jesus says. Well, what, well, like, it's a bit cryptic, isn't it? What's the sign of Jonah? I think Jesus is saying that there's something about Jonah and his ministry, the shape of his ministry, that the, the, the Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, should get. Maybe he's saying, look at Jonah's self-sacrifice. Remember, Jonah's not perfect, but eventually he says to the people on the boat, throw me overboard. Because the only way to appease this storm of God's judgment against my sin is for me to pay the price. So Jesus says, look at Jonah, look at his self-sacrificial death. And he says, likewise, you're going to see me on the cross thrown into the storm of God's judgment. God's judgment against our sin and disobedience. Right, look at Jonah's sacrifice, then look at me and my sacrifice. Look, uh, look at Jonah's burial. You remember Jonah chapter 2, Jonah's buried under the depths of the earth. It seems like he's, he's dead and gone. And Jesus says, look, uh, likewise, you, you will see me dead and buried under the depths of the earth. Look at Jonah's deliverance from death, swallowed by the great fish, spat out onto dry land. Likewise, Jesus says, you will see me spat out of the grave to glorious resurrection. And look at Jonah's proclamation to the Gentiles. Remember, Jonah spat out onto dry land and he finally goes to the city of Nineveh, full of Gentiles, so that, uh, to proclaim the, the good news to them that they might repent and believe and be saved. Likewise, Jesus says to these Jewish leaders, you're going to see my disciples proclaiming the good news of my kingdom to every nation, to the Gentiles, that they might repent and believe and be saved. Look at this sign of Jonah, Jesus is saying. That's the only sign you're going to get. And if you don't believe because of that, you know, the, the, the simple proclamation of my death, burial and resurrection, simple proclamation of the gospel, then you're not going to believe at all. That's what Jesus is saying. So that's the context of verses 1 to 4. What does that tell us about the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Uh, well, broadly speaking, if you take in the whole uh, of Matthew's Gospel, right, broad kind of panorama view, I think what J.C. Ryle says is really helpful. I was reading it during the week, and I think he's right. Uh, he says, Let us remember uh, that we live in a world where, you might not have realised this, but uh, we live in a world where Pharisaism and Sadduceeism are continually striving for mastery in the Church of Christ. Now, you didn't realise that every week you came along uh, to church. But this is what he says. Uh, some want to add to the gospel and some want to take away from the gospel. Some would seek to bury the gospel and some would to seek to prune the gospel down to nothing. Some would seek to stifle the gospel by heaping on all sorts of extra additions uh, and some would seek to bleed the gospel to death by subtracting from its truths. Both parties agree only in one respect. Uh, both would kill and destroy the life of Christianity if they succeeded in having their own way. Against both errors, he says, let us watch and pray, uh, let us stand on guard. Let us not add to the gospel to please the modern Pharisee and let us not subtract from the gospel to please the modern Sadducee. Oh, so that's his take on this yeast of the Pharisees, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees. Right? That the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, is sub adding to or subtracting from the gospel. Or perhaps more broadly, are the truths of God's word in general. And I do think that, that he's right. 
uh, if you look at the whole of Matthew's Gospel. So if you think uh, back to a few weeks ago, we looked at the start of Matthew chapter 15 and Jesus rebukes there the, the Pharisees and because what were they doing? They were adding their traditions to God's Word in such a way that it distorted and perverted God's Word. So that's the yeast of the Pharisees, J.C. where I would say. They're adding, to the te- they're adding to God's Word their traditions. And if you look forward to that verse we referenced before, Matthew 22, you remember the Sadducees are subtracting from the Gospel in their denial of the resurrection. So we'd say this is, this is the yeast of the Sadducees, those who would subtract from the Gospel. And so broadly, broadly speaking, I think he's right. The one problem with it is that that gives the impression that there's two yeasts, doesn't it, in a way? You could say that the yeast is that they don't believe God's word is sufficient. But it sort of says that they're different. But here the Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus together. And so I think, I think uh, Jesus is referring to something that they both share in common uh, in particular. So what is that thing? I think that the teaching that Jesus is talking about Uh, is that uh, both the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, demand more than Jesus and they demand more from Jesus than he's already given. Uh, They demand more than Jesus and they demand more from Jesus than he has already given. Or in their case, that he's going to give in the sign of Jonah. Both the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus uh, and they do that. They demand from Jesus, don't they? They demand more than Jesus and more from Jesus than he's already done and that he's going to do. It's as if somehow the sign of Jonah is not enough for them. As if the good news of the gospel is not enough for them. As if Jesus' death and burial and resurrection is not enough for them. The Pharisees say to Jesus, if we're going to believe, if we're going to put our lot in with you, then you've got to do more for us. We want more. We demand more. And I think we can easily fall into this teaching, this yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. You say to Jesus, look, I'll only believe if you give me me this specific worship experience. I believe if you give me this spiritual gift or this miraculous sign or if you give me this special revelation... If you're given this particular guidance in this life situation, you're always saying to Jesus, give me, give me, give me, demanding from Jesus more and more and more. As if somehow what he's already given isn't enough. As if knowing Jesus wasn't enough. It's not enough to know Jesus, the true bread of life. Not enough to be in relationship with the one who satisfies the deepest hungers of your soul. Not enough to drink deeply of the spring of living water every day to your heart's content. Not enough for you to know Jesus, the one who created all things and sustains all things, who gave his life for you on the cross. Is that somehow not enough? Need a bit extra thrown in. Demand a bit extra. Is it not enough to receive all the blessings that flow from Jesus' death and resurrection? It is enough. Jesus and what he's already done for us is enough. So trust in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember that good news. Be satisfied in that good news. 
And let me urge you today to pay attention to Jesus' two warnings in this passage. Two warnings about two dangers. Beware this danger of forgetfulness. Remember the mighty works of our Lord Jesus. We're going to do that later on in a second in the Lord's Supper. Beware the danger of false teaching, particularly this yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Heed the warning by remembering, trusting in and being satisfied in our Lord Jesus and in the good news of what he's already done. Let's pray. Uh, Our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, We thank you that in your kindness uh, and love, uh, you give us warnings, uh, warnings about real spiritual dangers that we face. Uh, We pray, Father, that you would fill our hearts and minds with the wonder of your great deeds that you've done for us in our Lord Jesus. Uh, that we wouldn't become spiritually forgetful. We pray, Father, that you would preserve us uh, in the sound teaching of your gospel and your word, uh, that we wouldn't stray uh, into subtle false teaching like this yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Uh, We pray that in staying on the path, the narrow path, uh, that we would find life in knowing our Lord Jesus, uh, trusting in him, remembering him, uh, and being satisfied in knowing him. In his name we pray. Amen.